Hello, St. Andrews. Let's uh, jump into Daniel 3 together. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about we do not see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about that which we do not see. Uh, Christian author Elizabeth Elliot was twice widowed within her life. Uh, the first time she lost her husband, Jim Elliot, uh, a missionary who died on the mission field, and then Addison Leach, a theologian who died uh, years later of a heart attack. Uh, in her many writings, she reflected on the days following each of these tragic losses, and uh, she said that she would be in the habit of reading the Apostles' Creed to herself. In the midst of the grief, in the midst of the loneliness and the loss, she asked herself this, what things in this moment have not changed, even though I have just lost my husband? What has not changed? To be a Christian is to trust that God is king, no matter what the circumstances are. To be a Christian is to trust that God is king with a bold and hopeful faith. In the midst of a world that is broken and groaning, a world that is often brutal and greedy, in a world that seeks to self-rule and impose itself against God, a world where kingdoms and individuals' lives rise and fall, in the midst of a world like that, the living God is establishing a kingdom that will last forever. That has not changed. The kingdom has a king as well. That king is Jesus. That is our hope as Christians. As Elizabeth uh, Elliot read, we believe that Jesus Christ God's, is God's only son, our king. We believe he was conceived of the Virgin Mary that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died and was buried. This has not changed, that he descended to the dead for us. But we also believe that on the third day he rose again. We believe he ascended into heaven, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father as king, that he will come to judge the living and the dead. These things have not changed. Whoever you are, as we look at Daniel 3 together, whatever your circumstances right now, these realities at the heart of the universe have not changed. Uh, my favourite sport is uh, the sport of AFL and uh, my, my own team is the Western Bulldogs who, to be honest, most years are terrible and very rarely do they win. But I, I remember one particular occasion in the last quarter of a game, they were miles ahead and uh, in the frustration of that, one of the opposition uh, members uh, barred straight through and decked one of the Western Bulldogs players. And instead of swinging a punch back, the Western Bulldogs player simply got up he turned his opponent towards the scoreboard and he pointed at it. Look at the scoreboard. Christian, the Apostles' Creed is our scoreboard. Living wisely is about having the, these realities uh, that are in the Apostles' Creed uh, that are at the heart of the universe, at the heart of our lives. A wisdom in this world is this, knowing Jesus is king, trusting Jesus as king and obeying Jesus as king. That's what wisdom is. But it is not always easy to do, is it? Sometimes the scoreboard, if we look at it in this world, looks altogether different. Sometimes the evidence says that things have changed. Uh, that's why we're looking at this book of Daniel together. We're watching God's people, not in God's city, but in exile in Babylon, and very much in that situation where the scoreboard looks terrible. Uh, you remember these two cities that we've seen, Babylon, uh, a city formed in the sands of Babel, a place, uh, and Genesis 11 tells us, that set itself up against God, a place of human self-rule that has no need or want of God. And then the other city, Jerusalem, the city that God was building uh, on his promise that he said would never fall, uh, the city where he would dwell with his people as their king forever, and yet as we've looked at Daniel, in the very first verse of the book, we saw that city of Jerusalem fall to Babylon. That's the scoreboard. 
Daniel and his friends are now out of Jerusalem, in exile, in Babylon, and in a place where significant powers hold sway that, that make faith in God's rule as king uh, hard to keep. And I want to suggest that as we read it together, we are in a culture and a city not that different. 21st century Sydney is also a city set against God and set against faith in God. Ours is a city of power and pressure and noise that all pushes against continuing to trust God as king. And what Daniel is doing is this book is helping us understand how can you live as those who know that God is king, know that that hasn't changed, in a place where pretty much everything else looks like it's king and holds sway. I mean, consider with me the powers that hold sway in our city. Powerful cultural agendas that shape the way we operate. Uh, powerful ideals of what success looks like and how we're meant to live. Uh, powerful workplace pressures, educational pressures, family pressures. Powerful ideas that we're meant to unite around if we're true citizens of the city. And the scoreboard does not appear to be in faith's favour in our city. And so Daniel helps us to see how we can actually hold on to faith in such a place without denying reality. And in Daniel 3, we, we have here one of the most famous stories in the scriptures, the story of the three in the fiery furnace. And simply, we're going to see two things together in Daniel 3. We'll, we'll see again this pressure to conform, but then we'll also see the wisdom of holding on to faith. Now let's look at each of those in turn. Firstly, this pressure to conform and two things about the pressure that we'll see that are illuminating for our own experience. We'll see that the pressure on us against our faith is both foolish in God's eyes, but it is actually fearful in the experience of God's people. Uh, backstory uh, to this book, as we've seen, Jerusalem is a conquered city. Now Daniel and others are in exile and struggling not to just be submerged in the secular and pagan culture around them. Daniel 2, last week we saw Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, receive a vision, a revelation from the living God to say how the future would play out. Yes, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, you are king and you will be king, a great king, a king of the gold head of the statue of Daniel 2, but only for a time. But God's kingdom that he will establish in the midst of all of these kingdoms rising and falling will last forever. And Nebuchadnezzar's initial reaction to this revelation is incredibly wise. Chapter 2, verse 47, Surely your God, he says to Daniel, is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. He can reveal the mysteries. He can tell us what the future holds. It's a wise word that Nebuchadnezzar speaks, but as time passes, so does this wisdom. Now, chapter 3, verse 1, here's what happens instead. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and he set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps and the prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come and to the dedication of the image that he'd set up. And so they came and they all stood around in the desert looking at this giant thing. And then the herald, verse 4, proclaimed, nations and people of every language. It sounds like revelation, doesn't it? But it's not. This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn and the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you're to fall down and worship the image of gold. Now here in Babel, that's where this is taking place, the same place that Genesis 11, the tower was built. Now the tower is being rebuilt, this time of gold, a, a giant 10-storey golden rectangle ruler. Now this is his response. Uh, 
In Daniel 2, he was told, you are the head of gold, but your rule is only temporary. You're only part of the ebb and flow of the history of the kingdoms of this world. And his response is, well, why don't I make the whole statue gold? Why don't I make it all me? Why don't we unite around that? And so he makes an image that is essentially an image of himself. It reminds me of uh, a story I read about Mariah Carey some years ago on her 35th birthday. Uh, she uh, created the most expensive cake in history up to that point, uh, made in London by the patisserie department of Harrods. It took them weeks to make it. And then when the party finally came around, uh, it was revealed to the partygoers at midnight. And what they saw before them was a black and gold and cream creation, 1.8 metres tall, 1.2 metres wide, shaped in the image of, well, you guessed it, Mariah Carey. Uh, from Nebuchadnezzar to Moriah, this is a picture of what human foolishness in the face of God's rule looks like. It's a foolishness that we are all guilty of. Now listen to this from Romans chapter 1. It speaks of this foolishness. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols, trading in God for man-made idols. And Daniel 3 here, as this statue is built in the desert, highlights three ways this idol worship is, well, utterly foolish. Firstly, it's foolish in God's eyes because, well, it's man-made. Now, verse 1 and verse 15, we're told that this God has been made up by Nebuchadnezzar. It, it, it was to give them something to worship, something to unite around as a, as a people, and that's what our world does. Our world ends up worshipping created things rather than the creator, as foolish as that is in God's eyes. Our world is filled with small, manageable, man-made gods like this. Yes, some of them are fashioned in our own image, a la Mariah Carey, but some of them are just the ones our city tells us that we must worship if we're to fit in, if we're to get ahead, if we're to be part of the system but all of them are actually powerless to help us. Now listen to these words from Isaiah 46. Some pour out gold from their bags and they hire a goldsmith to make it into a god for them. And they bow down and they worship it. They lift it on their shoulders. They carry it and then they set it in place and there it stands. It can't move from that spot. Even though you cry out to it, it can't answer you. It can't save you from your troubles. In the end, these idols are mute and lifeless and worthless. Second aspect of the foolishness we see in these verses is that it's foolish in God's eyes because it's not just man-made, it's set up against God. I wonder if you notice the, the, how many times that phrase set up is used in the chapter. And, and two things come to my mind. It's set up in the sense that it's a con job, it's a lie, but it's also set up in that it's opposed to God's kingship. I mean, that's what, that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's told back in chapter 2, verse 44, God is going to set up a kingdom. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He tries to set up his own forever kingdom in its place. It's foolish because it's set up. And finally, it's foolish because, well, in the end, all this worship is just empty noise. I mean, did you sense the sarcasm in the description in the chapter as uh, Brownie read it for us? Uh, first, there's a repeat of all the great and the good who were lined up to worship the statue. It's repeated again and again to give us a sense of just this chaotic scene of uh, sycophants. 
verse 2, verse 3. And then there's the music that has to be played as the worship happens. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship. It sounds a bit like a bodgy primary school band in full flight, doesn't it, with all the instruments going in different directions with their tune. Well, behold the festival of the new Babylon. Come one, come all, as the, well, our school recorder group plays its latest tune, bow down and worship the golden brick. And yet much of the cultural pressure at play in a city like ours has the same farcical nature to it from God's perspective. The one thing we must not do, we're told in our culture, is to fail to join in the chorus, the applause, the support for whatever the cultural elite around us want us to unite around. This is what we're about, well, this week. But see the empty tune of this desert ceremony. It's just one man's vain attempt to establish his own forever rule. And my mind uh, goes to Psalm 2 where God says this. He says, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let's break the chains. Let's throw off the shackles. Psalm 2 then says this, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. I have installed my king on Zion in Jerusalem, my holy hill. He'll be there forever. Now we see the foolishness of this from God's perspective and we must ask, why, why would any believer who knows that God is king be tempted to conform to this foolishness? Why would we find it hard not to buy into the idols of the city around us? Well, here's the reason. It's because the pressure is not just foolish. From our experience, it's actually uh, fearful for those who trust God as king. And you see that in this chapter. Firstly, it's fearful in our experience because it's actually hard to keep faith that God is king when that sets you against the power and authority in the place you live, like Babylon, like it was for these three men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was the case uh, for them. Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as king six times in the chapter to emphasise to us as they refuse to bow down to this giant golden ruler, they are disobeying the king and a powerful king at that. To refuse the command to bow down to this idol was to set yourself up against the king and against his huge threats in this chapter. Now, the reality is in Sydney, our faith rarely sets us against the authorities in this sort of dramatic fashion, but it may not always be the case. And it's not the case throughout our world. Uh, Let me encourage you this week to have a look at websites like Open Doors or the Barnabas Fund and see the pressure that believers are under in all around our world, the pressure to conform and to reject faith in God as king in the midst of all that they're going through. And I need to ask us, uh, even though it's not our experience now, is trusting God as king, if, if that sets you against the authority, if that day comes, and it may well come soon, what will you do? Now, here's the second way that the pressure is fearful. It's hard to keep faith, we're shown in D- uh, Daniel 3, when the tide of conformity, when those around us are all pushing in one direction. Imagine being there in the desert in this moment. Everyone, we're told, verse 2 and 3, is gathered there to set up in front of this this statue and and they're told what to do. When the music plays, everyone bows down and they all fall down, all of them. I mean, how do you hold on to faith when conformity uh, pressure comes, when everyone around you is saying, this is what it means to be a, a, a legit citizen? When not conforming will see you miss out on opportunities, uh, perhaps at work, perhaps 
Uh, it will uh, disconnect you from family members. Uh, what, what do we do when that pressure comes? Uh, when, what do we do when the pressure uh, to, to not conform would see you exposed for that? And that's what happens to these three. Is as soon as they don't bow down, that, that's, that's shouted out by other powerful elites. And so there it is. We see the powerful pressure, but now we'll see the wisdom of faith. As Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down despite this pressure, they're outed by these enemies and uh, it sets them against the king and it puts them in the path of his fiery threats. You see there, verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned them and said to them, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship this image of gold that I have set up? If you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God can rescue you from my might, says Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, how do you respond in that moment? I think how you respond, we're shown in Daniel 3, depends on what you know. What you know has not changed. Uh, here's what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego know. They know the promise of God from the city of Jerus Jerusalem. In a world where kingdoms rise and fall, they know the revelation of the future, that God is setting up a kingdom that will last forever. Christian, what do you know as pressure comes? Well, you know God's promise, don't you? So much more fully than these three men did. You know he, his king. You know our saviour, Jesus. Wisdom is knowing and trusting and obeying the king, even in Babylon. You see there, verse 16, see their response to the king's threats. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, our God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship this image of gold that you have set up. I love these verses. I reckon if you want a picture of what biblical faith looks like in in a world where uh, that challenges the idea of that faith, this, this is it, these verses 16 to 18. Faith is being sure of what has not changed, that God is king. Verse 17, you see there, they know the power of God despite this pressure on them. What God can rescue you, says Nebuchadnezzar. Their response, our God can. We know he can. Now let me ask you, do you know that of King Jesus? He has shown us his power once and for all. He is able to do abundantly more than all we ask or imagine. Nothing can separate us from him. Our God is able. That's verse 17. Here's the second picture of their faith. Verse 18, the start of verse 18. We see that part of their faith is to guard the sovereignty of God. Not their will, but his. But if not, they say, if he chooses not to rescue us, we still won't bow down. They're not trying to take God's role as king here and to tell him what he should do in this situation. Uh, th there is a danger, isn't there, for us as Christians to claim God's will for ourselves in the name of God, I want this. That's not a king, that's a genie. Jesus shows us his, this pattern himself as he prays there in the Garden of Eden in the hours before his own death, he says to his father, not my will but yours. That's faith. And finally, verse 18, another picture of faith. Uh, we're told that even if he doesn't rescue them, they will not serve Nebuchadnezzar's God because here's why. While they're uncertain of the circumstantial will of God, will he rescue them from the furnace or not? They're not uncertain of his revealed will. He says to them, as he has said to God's people, you shall have no other gods but 
me. And so behold the miracle of faith in our God as king. And as we finish, behold the miracle of rescue by our God and king. The attitude of these three men fuels Nebuchadnezzar's rage and uh, the furnace is turned up even more. Verse 21, these men wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes are bound and then they're thrown into this blazing furnace and everyone goes to watch. And at this point, our attention shifts. Verse 24, do you see it there? To Nebuchadnezzar and his reaction as he peers into this furnace and sees what's happening. And well, what's happening? Verse 25, there's someone else in the fire with them. One, we're told, like a son of the gods. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar will say later, an angel was with you. Something beyond Nebuchadnezzar's experience. He'd said, no one can rescue you from this. No God. Well, now it's happening. Somehow God is with his men in the fire. This awesome King Nebuchadnezzar with, with his fiery furnace had assumed that there was no God able to rescue like this, but there is a God who is able. Our God, says Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And so much was the rescue that the the fire hadn't harmed their bodies. Not even a hair on their head was singed. And uh, these worshippers who were busy bowing down to the golden rectangle turn and stop and now look at the furnace and watch a real God at work. Why is it worth bold, hopeful faith in God as king? It's because our God is with us no matter what. If we stand with him, he will stand with us as he has promised. Uh, Listen to these words in Isaiah 43. Do not fear, I've redeemed you. I've summoned you by name, you're mine. And when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, uh, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. The, The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. Uh, This miracle here is just a hint of his great rescue that he delivered once and for all through the mighty death and resurrection of Jesus. That's our hope. That's what has not changed. It is as 2 Corinthians 4.14 says, we know, this hasn't changed, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us. So as we finish, let me ask again, how do you hold on to bold and hopeful faith in God as king? You do it by asking the same question Elizabeth Elliot asked. What things have not changed despite whatever comes? Our trustworthy and true hope has not changed. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our king. We believe he was conceived of the Virgin Mary, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, died and buried, that that he descended to the dead for us. Uh, And yet we believe that on the third day he rose again and he ascended into heaven as the king and he's seated there at the right hand of the Father and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. None of this has changed. And because of these things, we know and trust this. We know and trust in the forgiveness of our sins, no condemnation. We know and trust in the resurrection of our body to come and the life everlasting. Amen.